invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Again, that is the book of Mark chapter 10. Many of you know, many of you do not, that uh, Laura and I are off to Germany tomorrow. We're uh, traveling there. We're going to visit for a week. Uh, We are going to spend three nights in Wittenberg. Apparently something significant happened there in 1517, so we're going to go check it out and see what all the fuss is about. And then uh, three nights in Wetzlar. Uh, if you were at the last members meeting, you'll remember that we've partnered with a, with a church in the city of uh, Wetzlar, and we are, we are helping to support two families linked, connected to that church, who are actually training as church planters. And the goal is for them to plant a church, I believe, in the city of Frankfurt, and so Ike and Tricia Thomas, they visited, what was that, April, May of this year. So Laura and I are going to visit, and I'm going to speak at a conference on the Puritans on Saturday. So pray for them. Uh, three sessions on the Puritans. They asked for it. That's what they're going to get. And then I'm going to preach at the church on, on the Sunday. So pray that the word of the Lord might speed ahead and be honored among his people, his people there. Have you found Mark chapter 10? I'm going to begin reading in verse 46 and go to the end of the chapter. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. What a heartwarming, a compelling story, narrative, this interaction between the Lord Jesus and this blind man whose name is given to us, Bartimaeus. I wish I could just launch out into my sermon, but I can't. First of all, there's an issue that we need to just clear up. It's actually an issue that began in last week's text. So just a little earlier in this chapter. Uh, The issue is known to some as the synoptic problem. It's not really a problem, but people call it that. The synoptic problem. Synoptic means viewed together. And it refers to the book of Matthew, the book of Mark, and the book of Luke. They are the synoptic gospels. Basically meaning the material is the same. John is quite different. John focuses on other material places, great emphasis on the upper room discourse and and all that happens there, beginning in John 13. But for the most part, Matthew, Mark, and Luke handle the same material. And so they are to be viewed and understood together. Some see discrepancies and so-called contradictions, apparent contradictions, disagreements between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they refer to this as the synoptic problem. And so this issue, the so-called synoptic problem, 
began in last week's text. Take a look at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, that is Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And then they make that request in your kingdom, in your glory. There are going to be two thrones at either side of your throne, the principal throne. Grant us the right, one to sit on your right, one to sit on your left. Who asked that question? Who made that request? James and John. Well, why is it when we go to the parallel account, the book of Matthew, chapter 20, we read that it was their mother that made the request? It's a contradiction. It's a discrepancy. We come into our text, this morning's text, today's verses, and look at verse 46, what we see there. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving, what's he doing? Leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And so according to what Mark says here, Jesus performs this miracle. He heals blind Bartimaeus as he is what? Leaving Jericho. Fair enough. Why is it Luke says that it is as he is approaching Jericho? Well, that's a, that's a contradiction. It's an error, say some. Same verse. How many men does the Lord Jesus heal? Bartimaeus, a blind beggar. Why does Matthew say it was? There were two men. And so we go through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we see apparent discrepancies. We see apparent contradictions, and it has led some to say synoptic problem. Contradictions, deficiencies, errors. Meaning this book is full of errors. Meaning this book is a human invention meaning I would never be crazy enough to believe anything this book says, meaning you're crazy if you actually think this book is the Word of God. I've heard that on many occasions in my life, and you'll hear it today. It's the given given position. You will hear people say simply in passing, it's accepted, it's given. There are errors in the Bible. When they say that, they are referring to these three examples, examples like this that I've just given you. And they label this the synoptic problem and say, therefore, the Bible is not to be believed. Let me just go over each of the three as we find them in in these verses again and submit to you a very simple resolution to each of them. And so back in verse 35, who asks the Lord Jesus for the right, the honor, to sit at his right hand and his left hand? Is it James and John themselves or is it their mother? In the parallel context in Matthew 20, yes, Matthew says it is their mother who makes this request. It's interesting, though, when Jesus responds, he does not respond to her. He addresses his comments to the two boys, Jimmy and Johnny, and he addresses them directly, speaks to them directly. You do not know, speaking to them, what you are asking of me. So their mother is present, the two of them are present, The request really originates from where? James and John, but it is uttered through their mother. Mark leaves out that detail. That's not a contradiction. He's simply not interested in it. He knows where the question came from, and he knows Jesus, in his response, speaks directly to James and John. No discrepancy here. No contradiction. It's just that Mark simply chooses to omit, make no mention of their mother because it's not relevant to the point he is making. The second instance 
example of the so-called synoptic problem. Verse 46, they came to Jericho. And so this miracle occurs on the way to Jericho, but Luke, well, either Luke got it wrong or Mark got it wrong. Mark says they're, on their, they're, on their, they're leaving there. Luke tells us they're actually approaching there. How do we resolve that? One plausible solution is very simple. There are actually two Jerichos. There is an old Jericho, which at this time, in the days of Christ, is simply a small village built on the ruins of that Old Testament city. We all remember that word Jericho, right? You remember Joshua and all the people of Israel marched around it seven times and the walls came tumbling down. That, that, the, 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 the rubble is still there. And there is a small village built on Jericho. Just a mile away, there is another Jericho. Both places are called Jericho. The second Jericho is newer, built, constructed by Herod the Great. Is it not plausible that the miracle occurs where? Between the two cities. So from Mark's perspective, they're leaving Jericho. That's Jericho number one. Luke's perspective, what does he mention? They are approaching Jericho. The two of them located just 15 miles north of Jerusalem. That's not a contradiction. There's a very plausible solution. So it's no, there's no error there. And then the third example of this, how many men are there? Now Mark tells us there's only one. No, he does not tell us there's only one. He does not say there was only one. He simply names a man. Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. Matthew tells us there are two. Mark doesn't care that there are two. Mark isn't interested in conveying that there are two. Mark, for some reason, and we'll get to this later, is actually very interested in naming one of these men. Identifying his father. Why? Is it not possible, is it not likely, this man is known to the people to whom Mark is writing? And he's making a point. Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, you know of whom I speak. And so he does not say there was only one. He simply mentions one of the two. Because again, it is in accordance with the purpose for which he is writing. And so Christian, understand this. When that newscaster or that journal report or that research item or institute says categorically in passing, the Bible is full of errors. Christian, please understand, this is the sort of thing they're talking about. That's what they're talking about. I've been studying this book going on 25 years. I've yet to find an error yet. There are no errors. There are no contradictions. When people start hurling that accusation at the word of God, they do not do so for intellectual reasons. They do so for moral reasons. Understand that, Christian. The issue is not intellectual. The issue is moral. They're already predisposed in terms of their attitude and what they think of the word of God. Therefore, they are looking for things to justify and buttress what is a moral, not an intellectual position. We need to be very clear. And clear up this so-called synoptic problem and be very dismissive when people dare lay this charge. Oh, the Bible, yep, full of errors. Nonsense. Show me an error. There are no errors. There are no discrepancies. There are no contradictions. That out of this way, I can come now to my sermon. There are three people, not people, three players, major players in this text. There is a great crowd. That's number one. There is a blind beggar. We know his name, Bartimaeus. And there is a merciful savior. One, two, three. Three major players. Fascinating and important for us to recognize at the outset, this is Christ, Jesus' last healing miracle. Maybe you've never noticed that before or thought about that. This is it. 
This is his last miracle of healing. This is the exclamation mark, the exclamation point on his entire healing ministry. This incident brings it to a close. The healing of this blind man, this blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. That should catch our attention, that this is it. Exclamation point. And we should lean in closely and pay careful attention to what Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is seeking to convey and impart to us as we read. So three players, let's take them one, two, three, as they come at us and see what Mark is saying. The first is the great crowd. And so look at verse 46. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, and a great crowd. And so Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, He has a rendezvous there. He has an appointment decreed before the foundation of the world. He is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. He is going to offer himself up, lay down his life on behalf of his people. He is moving toward Jerusalem. His disciples are following him. And this great crowd is accompanying him. It's the Passover. So there are lots of people traveling this road on their way to Jerusalem. And this man named Bartimaeus, very strategic in his thinking, he picks a strategic spot on the roadway to sit himself down so that he can what? Beg. He's got crowds of people walking by. He is startled. He is surprised when he hears, when he discovers something he never expected to hear, that Jesus of Nazareth, is on the way. Jesus of Nazareth is making his way to Jerusalem. And so he cries out, verse 47, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. How does the crowd, or at least most of those numbered among this great crowd, how do they respond to this man's cry? Verse 48, and many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. This might, this might sound a little abrupt, but so that we're perfectly clear here. They're telling him to shut up. That's what they're doing. The verb, rebuking him or telling him to be quiet, it's in the imperfect tense in the Greek, which means what? They don't simply say this once. They are continually, repeatedly telling him to shut up. Hold his tongue. Keep quiet. It begs the question, why? Why would they do that? Here's a man, a grown man, uh, by the side of the road, blind, a beggar. He hears that Jesus is walking by, and in his affliction and in his misery, he cries out, have mercy on me. Why would they tell him repeatedly to be quiet? Two reasons, very simple. The first is this. They do not see who Jesus is. They do not understand who Jesus is. Jesus has just said in verse 45, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. They don't understand who Jesus is. And the second reality, the second thing they're blind to is this. They don't understand who they are. Think it through. If they had understood, really understood, who Jesus is, if they had really understood who they are, they would not have told this man to be quiet. 
they would have joined him in crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. They have physical sight, but the blinders are on. They do not see spiritually. And they are clueless as to the person, the identity, and the reason the Lord Jesus has come. And they are totally, utterly blind to who they are and their state and condition before him. Friends, nothing has changed. There is, says Solomon, nothing new under the sun. This blindness is as pervasive today as it was in the days of the Lord Jesus. Man, in his natural state, is by nature blind, not physically, spiritually blind, to who is Jesus, really? Why has he come? And man in his natural state, again, is blind, not physically, but spiritually, in the heart, blind to who he is and his need of a Savior. If man really saw who Jesus is, really saw who he is before Jesus, he would cry out and cry out and cry out with Bartimaeus, son of David, have mercy on me. The blindness is evident. We spoke of this in the adult Sunday school earlier. Let me repeat it here. The, The blindness is evident in two categories of people. We have two categories of people that manifest this blindness, but manifest it in slightly different ways. We have over here what we can label, the, what, we, what we'll label the relativist or the hedonist over here. And over here we'll label, we'll categorize what we have, uh, what we'll call the, the, the legalist. So you have over here the relativist and you have over here the legalist. The relativist is someone who rejects God by rejecting his law, right? There are relativists here right now. Uh, someone dragged you here, or you came out of a sense of duty, or maybe curiosity, you're here, but in actual fact, you're living your life however you please. You kind of like the idea that maybe there is no God. You certainly aren't a big fan of the scriptures, and this idea that God actually requires something of you, demands something of you, that there is such a thing as absolute truth, there is such a thing as right and wrong, that there is a way to live which is pleasing and honoring God's sight, that is something you're running from. And you reject God, and you reject God by rejecting his law. That's the relativist over here, blind to who they are. But you see, over here you have the moralist or the legalist. They reject God not by rejecting his law. Listen to my words carefully and closely. They reject God by embracing his law. What? They reject God by embracing his law. And some of you here this morning fall into that camp to church all your life. Why wouldn't you go to church? Everybody goes to church. It's great to go to church. Said a prayer when you're six years old or 12 years old or 16 years old, and um, you've decided to live your life a certain way. And as far as you're concerned, you maybe never say this audibly, but you think you're one of the good ones in God's sight. And, and yes, saved by grace, maybe that's a little obscure as to exactly what that means, but how you really live and how you think is that God owes me. Um, I said a prayer. I've been going to church my whole life. I've given a tithe, if not more. I've never done anything um, scandalous. And I think I'm I'm actually a pretty nice, relatively speaking, good person. You are as blind as the relativist. We have these two categories of people, both suffering from the same ailment, the same problem, spiritual blindness, but that spiritual blindness manifesting itself in two different ways. 
There is a blindness as to who Jesus is and a blindness as to who they are, and as a result, they reject God by rejecting his law and live however they please. And on the other hand, there are those who are blind to who Jesus is, blind to why he really has come, come blind to who they are, and they reject God how? By actually trying to embrace his law and earn it. It's called a sense of entitlement. We have two perfectly illustrated in Scripture in the parable or the story of the prodigal son. The younger brother is what? He is the relativist. The older brother is what? He's a legalist. Friend, understand this. Neither of them loves the father. Do you get that? Oh, the older brother, he stayed home. That was nice of him. The older brother stayed home out of a sense of entitlement. That as far as he was concerned, if he played by the rules, crossed all his T's and dotted the I's, at the end he would get what is coming to him. And he resents it when his younger brother comes wandering home. He is the moralist. He is as dead in his sin and as dead in God's sight in his younger brother. There is the relativist and there is the moralist. Both in utter darkness, blindness. That's the great crowd that's following the Lord Jesus. We move on to the second player. We have a blind beggar. He's introduced in verse 46. We have his name, Bartimaeus. We know something of his parentage. Uh, Timaeus, he's sitting by the roadside. Now, in marked contrast to the great crowd, the great crowd does not see who Jesus is, understand why he has come. They're blind to who Jesus is. The crowd is blind to who they are. In marked contrast, this man who does not see physically, sees spiritually. He knows who Jesus is. And he knows who he is. It's revealed clearly in what he says. Right at the end of verse 47. Jesus, son of David, I know who you are. I see who you are. I know what the Old Testament says. I know what God promised all those centuries ago to our forefathers. I know the promise, the covenant God made with our great king David all those centuries before concerning his son, his descendant, whom God would establish on his throne for all eternity. And I know that when that, the Babylonians and that f- foreign empire invaded us in 586, so we're going back now 2,500 years, Bartimaeus said, I, I know from our perspective 2,500 years, from his perspective 600 or so years, I know that when the Babylonians invaded, well, that promise seemed to disappear. We've never had a king since. We have not had a king over us since the Babylonians invaded us and overran us. But you see, I understand that that covenant God made with David was not speaking of some little physical throne actually in uh, the city of Jerusalem, actually over just what is a little spot on the map. No, when God made that covenant with David concerning his son and his eternal reign and dominion and kingdom, he had something far more comprehensive in view. He was speaking of of an entire new order. He was speaking of a new creation. He was speaking of the renovation of the fallen creation. He was speaking of glory. I understand this. And I understand who you are. You are the fulfillment of that promise. You are the anointed one. You are the promised Messiah. You are the promised Christ. You are the promised king. You are the son of David. He knows who he is. And he knows who he is. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Extremely fascinating. Again, it's in the imperfect voice, in the original. Do you know what that means? He didn't say it once. He is continually repeating these words. Son of David, have mercy on me. 
Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. He cries out. The word in the Greek is actually stronger than that. The word in the Greek means to scream. It is, it's fascinating, it is the same word that is used earlier in Mark in reference to those who are demon-possessed. Not that this man is demon-possessed, but this man is beside himself. Somebody in here starts screaming like this, we dial 911. This man is hysterical. This man is crying out, screaming repeatedly, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. He knows who he is in marked contrast to the crowd. They're clueless by and large. And he knows who he is. He is in misery before a holy God. He deserves nothing from a holy God. He has merited nothing in his sight. He recognizes his status. He recognizes his condition. And out of his misery, his plea is only one. Mercy. That's all I'm asking for. His mercy. And now we move to the third player, the merciful Savior. Pay close attention. He actually does four things. These are beautiful. Take them in order. He does four things. Firstly, comes out of verse 49. He hears. You're not seeing that significant, but be patient with me. He hears Bartimaeus. The first few words in verse 49. And Jesus stopped. The cry of this man out of his misery and this screaming and this pleading for mercy brings the creator of the universe to a dead stop. It brings him to a standstill. This is irresistible. Here is a man who knows who he is, son of David, an inkling of why he has come, and a full understanding of who he is in his sinfulness and in his mercy, and is now crying out for mercy. It brings the Lord Jesus to a standstill. Friend, understand that. The Lord Jesus cannot resist that cry that emanates from a condition of misery. He tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, ask and you will receive. Uh, Knock, and the door will be opened unto you. Seek, and you will find. Friend, he is not talking about a Rolls Royce. He is not talking about a healthy, wealthy, affluent, prospering, bless me, bless me, bless me life. He is speaking of the spiritual realm. He is speaking to individuals who understand the intent of the Sermon on the Mount, who understand their unrighteousness before a righteous God who fully understand and see their predicament before a holy God, who understand in this state of hungering and thirsting after righteousness that their their only recourse, the only place they can turn, the only place they can throw themselves down is upon God's mercy. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door shall be opened unto you. Jesus, hear. This cry for mercy in a state of misery brings the Lord Jesus to a dead stop. Second thing is this. He calls Bartimaeus, carrying on in verse 49. He has stopped and said, call him. He doesn't speak to him directly. I presume he's, he's now addressing the 12. All right, you hear that voice, fellas. 
go find out who, who that is and, and bring him to me. Call him. And they called, off they go, still in verse 49. They called the blind man, saying to him, these words are beautiful, take heart, take heart, get up. He is calling you. Take heart. It is the strengthening of the soul by the removal of all doubts and fears. Take heart. It is the strengthening of the soul. Bartimaeus doesn't know how Jesus is going to respond to him. What, what, what's the only thing he's heard to this point? Shut up. Be quiet. Keep your mouth closed. That's all he's been hearing. That's what's echoing in his ears. What is Jesus going to think of him? What is Jesus going to want to have to do with him? Will Jesus have any interest in him at all? And the disciples get something right. And off they go and they find him. And the first words... Take heart. It is the strengthening of the soul by the removal of doubts and fears. It is the knowledge that God is ready to be merciful to those in misery. God is more than ready to be merciful to those in misery. As James reminds us, God is compassionate and merciful. Third thing Jesus does takes us into verse 51. He addresses Bartimaeus. Verse 51, Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? Let me just pause there. Give a moment for that to seep in. What do you want me to do for you? Ring any bells? You heard it before? Back in verse 36. James and John, they come to the Lord Jesus. Ask, grant whatever we ask of you. And the Lord Jesus, it is exactly the same question. What do you want me to do for you? What do the sons of Zebedee have on their minds? Glory, glory, glory. Exaltation, exaltation, exaltation. Give me, give me, give me. We know there are going to be two itsy-bitsy little thrones on your right and your left. We don't care if we're on the right or the left, but the two of us, that's where we want to be. We want to be exalted with you. Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus responds, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. There's nothing selfish about it. There is nothing self-serving about it. It is a perfect expression of faith commensurate to the special time in which Bartimaeus lived. You think, for example, in Matthew chapter 10, John the Baptist is already in prison. His, His days are numbered. Death is just around the corner. And he's a little discouraged. He's heard of Jesus' messianic deeds. That's how he describes them, messianic deeds. He sends off two of his disciples to seek out Jesus and to ask him, are you, are you really the, the expected one? Are you really him? And Jesus sends John's disciples back to him with these words. Uh, he quotes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 35. And he says, that prophecy is now fulfilled in you. And the very first words in that pro- fulfilled among you. And the very first words in that prophecy are these, the blind receive their sight. And he goes on to list in Isaiah 35 these other miracles of healing that the Messiah will perform when he comes. And so Jesus' response to John is, yes, you've seen my messianic deeds. Yes, you've interpreted them correctly. They reveal me to be the promised Messiah. The proof is in the fact that I am healing people of their blindness. 
The proof is that I am restoring the lame so that they can walk. The proof is that I am casting out demons. The proof is that I am raising people from the dead. All of these miracles belong to a special season while the bridegroom was here among us, while the king was among us. He performed these miracles as a visible confirmation that he was and is indeed the promised Messiah. You see, Bartimaeus knows that. He knows who Jesus is, the son of David. He knows why he has come. And he knows the promises in the Old Testament that when the king is among them, he will restore sight to the blind. This is a very appropriate response of faith on the part of Bartimaeus. I want you to restore my sight just as your word promises. This is a cry of faith. And the Lord Jesus, here's the fourth thing he does, verse 52. He heals Bartimaeus. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. A couple of things we need to be clear on there. Your faith, it is not the effectual cause of the healing. Faith is not some inner willpower. Faith is not some innate force that we conjure up, and if we can just conjure up enough of it, God can't help himself but will respond. And so we manipulate him through our willpower. No, faith is the state, the condition of the heart, When we understand, we see who Jesus is. We see who we are, and we cry, have mercy on us. That is faith. It is through this faith, the effectual cause is Christ himself. He heals Bartimaeus. But notice the expression right there in the middle of that verse. Your faith has made you well. It is not the normal, regular, usual Greek term for healing. It is the Greek term sozo, which actually means what? Salvation. Go your way. Your faith has saved you. It is not merely a physical restoration that is occurring here. It is a spiritual restoration. As Bartimaeus, in a manner commensurate with the special time in which he lives, expresses his faith in the Lord Jesus, the son of David, and from his misery cries out, have mercy on me. And then look at what we read in the rest of the verse. Immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. The way where? The very next verse as you enter chapter 11, the way to Jerusalem. Does Bartimaeus follow Jesus to Jerusalem? I think that's what's intended there. Does he see all that Jesus does and hear all that Jesus says in the coming week, the Passion Week? Does he witness the crucifixion of Jesus? Is he gathered with the disciples when Jesus appears to them in Jerusalem after his resurrection? Is he one of the 500 to whom Jesus appears after his resurrection and of whom Paul says some were still alive when he penned his first epistle to the Corinthians? Is he present on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God descends? Is he one of the first members of the church at Jerusalem? Is he widely known within the early church? Is he known to Peter? And that is why As Mark writes, Peter dictates, verse 46, they came to Jericho. 
And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, I know him, many of you know him, the blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. What a wonderful testimony to the compassion, the tender compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ and his promise to heed all who are weary and heavy laden, to heed all who come to him as a broken reed, a bruised reed, to heed all who come to him with that simple cry, have mercy on me. Three questions, friend. Number one is this. Do you see him? Do you have a clue who I'm speaking of this day? Do you see Jesus? Do you understand who he is, the eternal son of God? And do you understand why he has come? He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friend, question number two, do you see you? I'm telling you, there are plenty of us here this morning, in all likelihood. The relativist, rejecting God by rejecting his law. I'll live however I please. The moralist, rejecting God by embracing his law. Sense of entitlement. God has to bless me. God has to help me. God has to love me. Look at how I've lived. Blind to the condition of their soul. Blind to the depravity of heart. Blind to their miserable condition before a holy God. Friend, do you see who you are? And the third question is this. Seeing, not physically, spiritually, do you believe? Have you cried, son of David, have mercy on me? Our Father, our prayer is simple this day that you would restore sight to the blind. We do not speak of the physically blind or the physically impaired. We speak, our Father, of those who are spiritually blind in their sight, dead in their trespasses and sins, and pray that you'd be well pleased to manifest your power and your sovereign grace in granting sight and imparting understanding by your Spirit, bending the will, that they might come to a saving knowledge of your Son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we do ask it. Amen.